You are listening to audio from First Baptist Church in Fort Walton Beach. If you would like more resources or to watch our service online, please visit fbcfwb.org. Listen in as Pastor Wade helps us abide in Christ and advance the gospel through the teaching and the proclamation of God's Word. We used to sing a song in the church I grew up in often called the doxology. We'd sing it sometimes after the offering was taken up or Maybe after someone made some decision, the pastor would present the person that made a decision at the church, and we'd sing the doxology. We sing the doxology here as well. But here's what's interesting. I didn't know what the word doxology meant until I went to seminary. I had to go and learn a little bit about languages to learn what the word doxology actually means. It, it comes from the Greek word doxa, which translates as Glory. So the doxology is a song that gives God glory. It is an aptly named song. And in our text this morning, we're going to see a doxology. We're going to see a statement of, of effusive praise and worship where, where Paul is filled to overflowing in this, this statement of of. of Glorification for God just comes spilling out of him. And we'll see it in Ephesians chapter 3. So turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 3. We'll begin reading in verse 20. We are continuing our study line by line, verse by verse, this wonderful letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a group of Christians in the first century city of Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. 20. I'll talk some more about this in a moment, but we're almost halfway through the book. All right, So we are working our way through. If you're physically able this morning, I want to ask you today to stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's Word, which is truth with no mixture of error. The Bible is the living Word of God. Hey, you read other books, this book reads you. Amen? The living Word of God. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 20, the Bible says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory, doxa, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we are grateful for this opportunity that you grant us yet again to gather. To sing praises to you. And to, Lord, fellowship around your word. Lord, to come to this moment expectantly. Lord, anticipating you speaking into our lives by the power of your word, apply to our hearts by the power of your spirit. So God, would you just have your way in our midst? 
transform us, move in such a way that we leave today different than when we walked in the room. So that we might live in a way that glorifies you. We love you, we praise you, we offer you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Well, I just mentioned we've made it to the halfway point of this letter that Paul wrote. And this is actually a major turning point in the the book or the letter of Ephesians. This letter divides almost evenly into two major sections. I love the way that J. Sidlow Baxter says it. He says that in chapters 1 through 3, we see described our wealth in Christ, all that is ours through Jesus, all the spiritual blessings that God pours out upon us because of our relationship with His Son. So chapters 1 through 3 explore our wealth, our riches in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 describe our walk with Christ. How we ought to live practically in light of what God has done for us through His Son. So first half, wealth in Christ. Second half, our walk with Christ. You can say it like this. Chapters 1 through 3 are doctrinal in nature. Chapters 4 through 6 are practical in nature. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with statements of theological facts. In grammar, we call these indicatives. Chapters 4 through 6 are filled with instructions for how we ought to live in light of those facts. Grammar calls those commands imperatives. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with axioms. Chapters 4 through 6 are filled with applications. Chapters 1 through 3 are filled with characteristics of salvation in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 are filled with commands for those who are in Christ. First half... Of the book filled with propositions. The second half filled with principles. The first half explores our riches. Second half calls us to our responsibilities. And so in the second half of the book, the, the tenor of, of the content is going to change a bit. Paul's going to begin to deal with some very practical issues in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about things like unity, our emotions. Our speech. We're going to talk about things like forgiveness and purity and marriage and parenting and spiritual warfare. There's a lot of important truths that we're going to dive into in chapters 4 through 6. But before Paul starts with the implications, the applications, the practical section of this letter, he ends the doctrinal section With a doxology, a statement of exuberant praise. Before he leaves uh, this discussion on the wealth of Christ, he just wants to praise the Lord for all that he's done in Christ. That's why he says there in verse 20, now to him, now to him. I I, want to worship him, I want to glorify him, I want to praise him. It's all about him, now to him. And we know this is a major division point in the letter because he ends this doxology with the word amen. So he wants to end this section by just praising our great God. And then he goes on to the practical section. In this doxology, this 
two-verse statement of praise, we are reminded of two very important realities about God. So what I want to do is I want to just explore this doxology and, and, and highlight those two realities. First, we are reminded of God's power. He's praising the Lord here, dox, doxa, glory, and, and, and he highlights in this statement of praise God's power. Look what it says there in verse 20. Now to him, I, I'm going to focus on him, direct attention to him. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power, that's the, the Greek word dunamis, is where the word dynamite comes from, according to the, the, the power at work within us. I want you to see two things about God's power that, that we see in this section of Scripture. First of all, God's power is abundant. It's abundant. Look what he says. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly. He's speaking of the unlimited nature of God's power. He's speaking of God's omnipotence. And he says there, he is able, he has the ability to do far beyond. Far beyond. And Paul uses an interesting word. It's translated in the ESV as, he's able to do far more abundantly. See that phrase, far more abundantly? That's kind of... One of the, the ways the English translates it, but it doesn't really grasp the word that Paul uses. This word that he uses is a double compound word. I want to say it for you, not to impress you, but just so you can hear uh, how long this word is. It's the word huper ek parisu. Huper ek parisu. It's a, it's a double compound word. It appears three times in the New Testament, all in the writings of Paul. And it is the highest form of comparison imaginable. So you could translate it something like this. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. Or infinitely beyond all that we ask or think. Or very far in excess of anything that we ask or think. It's a word that, that speaks of over and aboveness. I know that's not a word, but this gets at the, the meaning. Over and aboveness. The, the, the power of God is, is infinitely beyond anything that we can ask for or dream of. You could say it like this. Paul is saying, now unto him that is able to do all, but that's not good enough. So it's like he's saying he's able to do Above all, but that's not quite good enough. So he's saying he's able to do abundantly beyond above all. That's not good enough. So he uses this double compound word to say he's able to do exceeding abundantly above all. He's just trying to communicate here how, how limitless, how magnificent, how, how breathtaking God's power is. And he gives us a couple of examples First of all, he wants us to understand that God's power is far beyond, infinitely beyond anything that we ask. Now when you ask God for something, what are you doing? You're praying, right? So God has the infinite ability to answer all of our prayers. 
Let me say it again. God has the infinite ability to answer all of our prayers, all that we ask. God has the, the capacity by his power to answer our prayers. There is, there is nothing beyond God. There's nothing too difficult for God. There's nothing impossible for God. So why do we pray small prayers when God has power that goes far beyond anything that we could even ask for? He has infinite ability to answer all of our prayers. Oh, that we might glean from this verse. Oh, that we might be motivated by this verse to go to God with big, faith-filled prayers that we might see God move mountains because we ask God to move in mighty ways knowing that He is able to do far more abundantly than anything we request. Why do we pray so little? Why do we pray so shallow? When God has this kind of power that he brings to bear on us and on our situations and on those things that we pray for. I mean, even thinking about our nation. Now, if you've been paying attention, our nation is in trouble. There's some very serious things happening in our nation right now. It's time for God's people to pray big prayers. To call out to Him and say, God, You have all power. Only You can help. You're our only hope. God has the infinite ability to answer all of our prayers. Secondly, God has the infinite ability to do more than anything we can dream. I love how Paul says it. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly, exceeding abundantly, infinitely, abundantly beyond all that we ask, that's prayer, or think. That speaks of our dreams, our visions, things we want to see happen in our lives and see happen in our families and see happen in our community and see happen in our nation. These, these big picture things that, that we want to see come to pass. Listen to me. No matter how big your vision is, God's power is beyond it. To bring those God-honoring visions and dreams to pass. He has infinite Ability. Let me ask you a question. I think this is a really important thing for us to consider together today. Have you been dreaming kingdom dreams? Are, are there some things in your life spiritually? Are there some things in your family? There's some things in your workplace, your community. Are there some things you want to see God do? Some needs that you want to see God meet. Some transformation that you want God to bring about. Are you dreaming kingdom dreams? That God would move with this infinite, abundant, overflowing power and change things? Are you content with the status quo? Are you content just going through the motions? Or do you want to see God move? 
Do you have kingdom dreams, kingdom vision that, that, that God would bring about some things for his glory alone? Paul says, dream as big as you want to dream. God has the power to bring it about and even more. Isn't that good? So God has infinite ability to do more than anything we can dream. God's power is abundant. But secondly, God's power is available. Look what he says back in verse 20. This is really an astounding statement. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power... His power at work, look at this, within us. This power is available to me. And this power is available to you. You say, uh, Pastor Wade, what kind of power are we dealing with here? Let me just remind you a couple things. God shows us in his word and shows us through the created order that he has the power to bring about everything from nothing. That's powerful. Amen? I mean, there was nothing and he spoke into the void and creation leapt into existence. If you think that's not power, tonight when you go to take a bath, Instead of turn on the water, say water and see what happens. God showed his power by bringing the cosmos into existence. He made the heavens and the earth and he made you and he made me intricately weaving us together in our mother's womb breath taking power the, the the creator god but not only does god have creation power god has providential power he oversees the affairs of humanity he raises up kings and brings down others he's in control of human history and in, in fact you can break down that word history into his his story God is in control. God is calling the shots. God is not wringing his hands in heaven. God is bringing this all to a just and glorious conclusion where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. God's at work. He's in control. He's calling the shots. He is sovereign, providential power. But oh, aren't you glad that God has saving power? That God made a way? To save guilty sinners like me? That God sent His only Son, Jesus, who by the power of the Spirit took on human flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary? And Jesus, God on earth, the God-man, lived a perfect, matchless life. He never sinned. He never thought a wrong thought, said a wrong word, performed a wrong deed. Perfect God on earth and Jesus Christ, the God-man of his own volition. Because he loves you and because he loves me, he went to the cross and shed his blood. 
He died on the cross for our sins and his infinite blood paid the the infinite debt that we owe. He died in our place. He took the wrath of God that we deserve. He took the punishment that we deserve. He died for us on the cross. He defeated sin when he laid down his life. That's power, amen? Oh, but it doesn't stop there. There's more power. There's more power. Remember, they took him down off the cross and they, they put him in a borrowed tomb. And he laid there Friday night and Saturday morning and Saturday afternoon and Saturday evening. But early on Sunday morning, early on the first day of the week, Jesus Christ rose from the grave. He defeated death itself and rose victorious. Aren't you glad of the power of God over death? So we're talking about a God of power, creative power, Sovereign power, saving power. And Paul says all of that power is at work within us. Wow. Wow. At work within us, within his people. Which begs the question, doesn't it? Why do we find ourselves living such powerless lives? Why is Satan chewing us up and spitting us out? Why are families crumbling? Why are we struggling to the degree that we're struggling, making very little impact in the world when this power is available at work within us? Maybe it's because we don't avail ourselves to this power. That we don't wake up every day and say, Lord, I surrender all. I decrease that you might increase. I want to die to self that you might live through me, showing your glorious power, bringing it to bear on my life and the way I impact others. I believe this kind of power is not manifest through our lives if we don't surrender all. And because we're willing just to go through the motions and just do our thing in our own power and strength, because we've lost our desperate dependence upon the Lord, there's this power latent within us, the power of God, and yet we're living powerless lives. Paul reminds us in this doxology that God's power is abundant and God's power is available. But quickly, number two. Not only in this doxology, we're reminded of God's power, we're reminded of God's glory. Look in verse 21. To Him, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul is quick after discussing the power of God to point to the glory of God. Like how John Stott says it. The power comes from him. The glory must go to him. And so he says there, to him be glory. I told you the Greek word there is the word doxa. And it means something like praise in light of God's worth or God's worthiness. The the Hebrew word that's translated glory is a very interesting word. It's the Hebrew word kavod. 
And it means something like wait. And, and here's the deal. Back in ancient times, kings would compare themselves based upon weight. Not physical weight, but the weight of their material possessions. So if one king owned more than another king and his gold weighed more than the other king's gold, that king was more worthy than the lesser king. He had more weight, more worth. And that's the idea of the biblical word glory. That God is worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. And the Bible is, is, is so clear in reminding us that God is the only one that deserves this ascription of worthiness. He's the only one worthy of worship. He's the only one worthy of praise. This morning in my time alone with God, I read Psalm 115, verse 1, where it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. He's the one who is worthy. He's the one that deserves glory. The only one. And Paul explains a couple of important things about God's glory. First of all, God's glory is to be preeminent. To Him be glory. To Him be glory. And then he tells us some platforms for His glory. Where we see God's glory shine and on display. First of all, the church is a platform for the glory of God. Look what it says there in verse 21. To Him be glory in the church. In the church. Now the word church there speaks of all those who are redeemed in Christ. It's not speaking of a local uh, congregation. It's speaking of the, the, the universal church, if you will. But of course, the universal church is manifest through local congregations. And so the point here is this. God designed the church to be a show, showcase for His glory. God designed the church to be a platform for His glory. In other words, people should be able to look at our local church and see the greatness of God. Not because we're perfect. Not because we've got it all figured out as people. But because we are clinging to a gracious God who has forgiven us and is, is in the process of changing us. And he even chooses to use us in his mission. Isn't that cool? And as a group of imperfect people get together and say, man, we got issues, but boy, God is good. They see God's work. They see his handiwork. They see his transforming power. They see his amazing grace. And he gets the glory. The church is a platform for the glory of God. Oh, that when people encounter our church in worship services and Bible studies and vacation Bible school and live nativity, whenever they, wherever they encounter our church... Oh, that they would walk away from that encounter. Not saying, oh, hey, that's a, a great church, or that's a, that's a great staff, or, or we like this. or No, that they would walk away saying, we have seen the living God at work. And oh, we want what they have. We want to follow and worship that same Jesus they follow and worship because they sure seem excited about him. 
God's glory. The church is the platform for the glory of God. In fact, it says in verse 10 of this chapter that the heavenlies are watching God's multivaried wisdom on display as he works in and through the church. But then, not only is the church the platform for the glory of God, Jesus is the apex of the glory of God. Look what he says. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Paul here is highlighting that the central figure in the redemption of humanity is Jesus Christ. Or let me say it like this, and and I want you to hear me. If you tune me out for a moment, just, just draw in close for just a second. You listening? Everything that we are that is good and everything that we hope to be is wrapped up in the person of Jesus. It's all about him. That's why Paul says in Colossians 1.18, he, Jesus, is the head of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, listen, that in everything he might have the preeminence. Paul wants us to understand that Jesus is the apex of the glory of God. You can't make a big deal about God without making a big deal about Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, God has arranged human history so that when the dust settles, every tongue is saying the name of Jesus. Every knee, Christian, non-Christian, passionate Christ follower, militant atheist, Every knee will bow before King Jesus. You can give him glory now or you can give him glory then, but you will give Jesus glory. You say, I don't like that. It's in the Bible. I can't change it for you. It's what God says. He will get glory from your tongue. And your knee will bow before him. That day is coming, but can I tell you this? Having been changed by Jesus, I gladly, with my tongue, give him glory now. Amen? I I gladly bow my knee before him now. He's the apex of the glory of God. So his his glory is to be preeminent, but secondly, is to be perpetual. We're going to close with this. Look what it says in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And he keeps talking. I mean, he could have put an amen right there, but he says some very important things. Throughout all generations, forever and ever, amen. For all generations speaks of every successive group. That lives in this world. And the phrase forever and ever speaks of all time. God desires for his glory to be recognized in every generation. For his glory to be recognized, to be praised forever and ever and ever and ever. God expects that the glorifying of his great name will continue on in an unbroken chain with one generation commending our Savior to the next. 
And if you have a passion for the glory of God, you will be passionate about passing His glory on to the next generation. It's just that simple. You say, I love the Lord. I'm excited about the way He's working in my life. Do you love Him enough to tell the next generation about Him? Are you excited enough about Jesus that you'll do whatever it takes that your children's generation and your grandchildren's generation and your great-grandchildren's generation will hear of the saving love and power of Christ? Do you care enough to pass it on? Paul's saying his glory is so beautiful. His glory is so wonderful. He is so worthy of our praise. Oh, how this glory needs to be celebrated with every generation. And again, we look at our nation. As we look at the generations behind us, each new generation, we're seeing less and less percentage of those following Jesus. The numbers are going in the wrong direction. We must make it a priority in our families, in our church family, in our community, in our nation. We must make it a priority to do what it takes to let the next generation know about our great God. To say to those coming behind us, we have tasted, we have seen. The Lord is good. I read a book by... A pastor named John Avan, he now serves with a revival ministry traveling around the nation. But he wrote a book about these two verses. The name of the book is The Passion Promise. It's about Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. And then when he was talking about this section of the verse, about God's glory in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, He shared a note from his father. And his father wrote this note to pass down to John, that John would pass down to his sons and his grandsons, ostensibly his children and his grandchildren. And and here's, here's the note. I just want you to hear what he wrote. Son, grandson, great and great, great grandson, future generations, listen to me, exclamation point. Choose... Jesus Christ. He stands at the door, knocks, and weeps when you turn away. I can only pass along to you my testimony and my heritage of faith in Jesus Christ. It is your responsibility to choose for yourself. Your choice will have eternal consequences for you and your children after you. I pray, I love this, this, this line... I pray that not a single one of you will break the chain of our family serving the Lord until the end of the age when Jesus calls his whole family home to the place he is preparing. Just a a father's heart, grandfather's heart, great-grandfather's heart. Oh, I pray there would be this unbroken chain through my family, through my, through my lineage, through my descendants, that they would keep giving glory to Jesus. 
till he comes again. Is that your heart? It's the heart of the Apostle Paul. He didn't want to see the work of God come to an end with his apostolic ministry. When his ministry came to an end, he wanted to see God do something that was beyond him. And oh, how we need God to do something that will last beyond our earthly lives. Amen? That's the goal. I love the way Steve Green said it in a song from years and years ago. May all who come behind us find us faithful. May the fire of our devotion light their way. May the footprints that we leave lead them to believe. And the lives we live inspire them to obey. May all who come behind us find us faithful. Listen, Jesus is worthy of a faithful life that passes on his glory to the next generation. Amen? And so, this is doxology. Paul's been talking for three chapters about how good it is to be in Christ. And before he gets to the practical stuff, he just can't help but take a moment and praise our great God. Thank you for listening. We pray you've been encouraged and inspired by God's Word. May the Lord richly bless you.